You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Kingsway. Super glad you're here. So a lot of people were guessing what movie we were covering today. By round of applause, how many of you got it right? Both of you. Good. 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 So if you're visiting Kingsway, you're new here. We're going through a series, kind of covering some Christmas movies. And uh, I found a long time ago it was really helpful to confess your sins. And so I just want to confess that uh, I have never seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Thank you. My people. Until this week, when the team looked at me and said, Matt, you cannot get up on stage and fake it. You picked the movie, buddy. You got to show up and watch the movie. So I watched it, and I was pleasantly surprised. So how many of you are annual It's a Wonderful Life fans? You watch it every year. God help us, everyone. Uh, No, seriously, it was a good movie, and uh, it was really nice to watch a movie that was more about acting and story than it was about CGI and all the stuff we throw into Hollywood today. And so if you don't know the story, in case you were just like me before five days ago, let me bring you up to speed real quick on It's a Wonderful Life. And it is in black and white, but I do recommend you go check it out later. So in essence, the movie follows the main character whose name is George Bailey. And George shows him early in his life. Uh, he and his brother and some friends are, are playing on a pond, and his brother falls into the pond, and George doesn't even hesitate. He jumps into the water, and he saves his brother. Of course, that creates a problem for George throughout his whole life as he has an ear problem as a result of going into the water. And that becomes a little bit relevant in one of the next scenes as uh, George ends up saving what we would call today a pharmacist, a local pharmacist from uh, accidentally poisoning somebody. And uh, he saves him even to the chagrin of the pharmacist taking out on poor George's ear. And uh, as the story moves on, basically what it's doing is it's showing you that even though George has these dreams to get out of town, to go make a name for himself, to make a lot of money, to be famous and get out of the small town, There's a bigger purpose for his life. And so George stays and he invests where he is and he ends up taking over dad's business as a local banker. And uh, perhaps the most eye-opening thing in the entire movie is just how much you could have bought a house for 80 or 90 years ago. (laughs) Like, if only, that's my house payment. And anyway, but George ends up helping all these people in his local community. And so basically three-fourths of the movie is setting up George as this really good man, this man that everybody would want to root for, everybody would want to be. But then one day, things go sideways. There's always this drama running behind the scene for George, and there's this, this evil man in the story, and he just wants to take everybody down and make himself rich. He's the prototypical Hollywood greedy person. And uh, it finally hits a head because somebody in George's business makes a mistake. And not only is it a little mistake, it is a colossal mistake. It's a mistake that George does not have the ability to overcome. And so he's going to be not only bankrupt and lose everything, but everybody in the town is going to be in trouble as a result. And George is going to end up going to jail for fraud. And so we find ourselves later in the story, George is standing on a bridge and he's having this brief conversation with God, but ultimately he's looking at the water below and the scene is set up because George is going to kill himself. He's going to jump off the bridge. And I can only imagine that for George, life felt very, very dark. So question for you, has life ever felt dark? 
and made you wonder if God was real or even at all interested in your story and what you were going through. If not, you've never had that season where you wondered where God was or was he paying attention or would he come through, man, I celebrate with you. I can just tell you that's not everybody's story. And many people wrestle with that. And there's something about this time of the year that just kind of brings it to the surface and makes you wonder, if God is good, can I trust him? Well, yesterday I got to sit down. I told you part of this story, so forgive me that I've told part of it before, but I got to sit down with a man named Kevin who's in our church, and uh, Kevin wrote out his testimony for me, and he gave me his permission to share that testimony. And here's what Kevin says in his own words. At this particular point in my life, I thought I was on top of the world. My business was doing insanely well. Internally, emotionally, I was falling apart. Spiritually, I was dead. The only pride I had was me. The only thing I truly cared about was me. I wasn't leading my family and my priorities were a mess. In March of every year, we build a feature garden at the Flower and Patio Show. This particular year, I would win the Garden of Excellence Award. This is the highlight of my career. Two days later, March 15th was my birthday. My dad normally called every year, no matter what. This year, he hadn't called. I noticed it and told myself that I would call him the next day. Instead, my mom called on Thursday to let me know he had a stroke and was in the hospital, but they thought he would be okay. The following Monday, they called to say we had to make end-of-life decisions. For most of my life, my dad had been absent. Most of it, he spent in Tennessee as an alcoholic with no job. Later in his life, he tried to mend the fence, but the damage was done, and we never really rekindled. At the end, my mom and brother were close to him. It was the first time I had ever truly prayed for guidance. He passed on the following Thursday, and we had his funeral on the following Tuesday. After the dust settled from the showing and the funeral, my business now had to take full concern. I had been absent for basically a month dealing with the showing and my dad. I came back to a full-fledged fire. Everything was on fire, and the business was heading for bankruptcy, or so it felt. I tried everything I knew to turn it around quickly, but it seemed like I was failing. One morning, I sat on my back porch. I realized I was so emotionally numbed everything. I was indifferent to the things I loved. I Googled this feeling, and I learned it was a side effect of the medication I was on. Unfortunately, I could not get a hold of the VA doctor to talk about this, so I stopped taking the medication cold turkey. At first, I felt great, and then I didn't. So, I did what I always do. To blow off steam, I went and I got drunk and high. Way too far. I got kicked out of a club for starting a bar brawl. Somehow, my wife managed to get me home. I was out of control. When we got home, I tried to kill myself. Somehow, she wrestled the gun out of my hands. The gun went off and shot a hole through our back door. After this, things got pitch black. I sat in my shame. At this point, I had stopped taking my medicine. I had just went mentally and physically out of control, and my whole life was spiraling. I think Kevin's story so greatly aligns with this critical moment in George Bailey's life. Kevin is a good man. He's worked hard his whole life to provide 
for those in his family, to help, to start a business, to be an active, helpful member in society. He's a good guy. He's a nice guy. Is he perfect? No. But as Kevin is beginning this relationship with God, he's been in church much of his life. He grew up Catholic. His mom, to hold him accountable, he told me yesterday, uh, she would ask him every Sunday if he went to church, and he learned that he could skip if he could grab the church bulletin and come home and show his mom, except she stopped buying it after a while. But the faith was there. There was something there. And perhaps the biggest hero in his life and the biggest influencer in his faith was his grandmother, who went through some really, really hard things. And one day when talking to his grandmother, he asked her how she could have faith in the midst of all the things going on. And his grandmother simply said to him, well, what's the alternative, the devil? And he really resonated with the simplicity of that. I only have two choices, really. It's to go with God or not. And that was always a driving force in Kevin's life. But sometimes life happens. And when it does happen, the question is always, to whom or to what will you turn? And I love, if you go back to the movie and you see the, the trajectory of George Bailey, he wanted to be something. He wanted to have something. He wanted to achieve something. And it was through the process of kind of living that out and, and walking through that, that he came to realize everything he had was actually right here, right near him. St. Augustine, or some say Augustine, uh, in his book, The Confessions, he says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Man, you may get nothing else out of today's message, but I will tell you this. If you can connect in any way with Kevin's story or with George Bailey's story, then this quote might just be for you. Because until you rest your heart, anchor, tether your soul to Jesus Christ, you will be anxious all the days of your life. Now, what I wanna do is I wanna unpack for a minute. How do we find peace? How do we find rest in Jesus' name. And I wanna take us to one chapter in the Bible, and that's in Romans chapter five. A couple things real quick. So if you don't know how the Bible works, Romans chapter five follows Romans chapter four. I'm not making fun of anybody. I know that sounds trivial. But see, if you've never read a Bible before, you don't know that. And so what happens is each chapter builds on the one before that. Now, there are 66 books in the Bible. Romans sits roughly two-thirds or three-fourths of the way through, through the entire collection of all these different books, and it's plopped right down there, written by a guy named Paul to a small gathering of believers in an area or city known as Rome. Now, when we think of Rome today, we think of Italy. And when we think of Rome today, we tend to think of the Catholic Church, the Vatican, the Pope, or something similar. That was not at all what it was like in Paul's day. In fact, there were no Christians in the area yet until this church was birthed. And it was a really small gathering in a really big city, one of the major, major cities of the ancient Roman Empire. And Rome had a pantheon of gods. That means they had many, many, many gods. They had a god for everything you could think of. And so when the faith in Jesus Christ went into Rome, people were called not to worship all these gods, not to add Jesus to one of the many other things in life that they turned to for blessing, but instead to give up their lives, to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and let him be Lord of their life. So what Paul says in the first four chapters of Romans, just, just to lay this foundation before I get to Romans 5, in Romans chapter 1, he describes the people in Rome. And really, it's symptomatic of all of us. It, it would be symptomatic of me and you today, apart from my faith in Jesus Christ. And what he says in Romans 1 is, all of us chased after the things that we wanted that felt good in this world. 
And God handed us over to that. He said, fine, if you don't want me, if you want that, have it, chase it. But you get everything that comes with it. And as they chased these different pleasures and desires of this world and not God himself, what they found is it brought them misery. It didn't bring them what they actually wanted it to bring them. In Romans chapter two, Paul says, now before you Jews who live in Rome and are starting to explore Jesus Christ, before you point a finger and say, those dirty Romans, you should realize you're no better than them. That's how he gets to Romans chapter three. And he says, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God stands for God's perfection. God is perfect in all his ways, in everything he does. And he called us to be the same, except we didn't hit the mark. We missed the mark. And that's what the word sin literally means. So Paul, by Romans 3.23, is saying all of us have sinned. Welcome to Kingsway. You're a sinner just like me. We're so glad you're here with us today. Because by the time we get to Romans chapter four, Paul starts to solve the problem. And he starts to lay a foundation how going all the way back when man turned away from God and started to sin, that God started to save us through Jesus. That's how we get to Romans chapter five, verse one. And he says, therefore, that therefore is referring to everything else he has said up to that point. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. All right, lots to say here, but let's just unpack a few things. So first of all, justified is courtroom language. What you need to picture is there's a table, right? And on one side of the table sits me, and in front of me sits this massive stack of things that I've done that I weren't supposed to do. I wasn't supposed to do. That's what we call sin. Now, next to me is another stack, a smaller stack, a George Bailey-style stack, and that's all the things that I've done that are really, really good. Now, what most of us think in this life is, as long as this stack is bigger than this stack, I'm good to go, right? So if I could just do more good things than I did bad things, I'm good. Yesterday, uh, there was this joke between me and Kevin when the waitress came by and she's like, you know, who, is this on one check? We both said yes at the same time, both of us intending to pay. And Kevin's like, Matt, I got this. I'm like, well, I am using your testimony tomorrow. I got this. And we joke back and forth. I said, don't worry about it. We'll arm wrestle, which was a terrible idea because Kevin would clearly have beat me in arm wrestling. But um, before I could do anything, he took the bill, which he brought the receipt. He just grabbed it, stuck it in his pocket out of reach so that I couldn't get it when he wasn't paying attention. And we joked about that back and forth. And he said, look, I got a lot of things to make up for. And I looked at Kevin and I said, you're going to owe me a lot of lunches then because it's Probably way more than you think, buddy. Because what most of us think is that if we just do a couple really good things, it'll make for, it'll make up for all the bad things we've done. And the problem is, as the scriptures tell us, the, the situation is far worse than we ever thought. Far worse. But praise God, we stand justified. Not because of what we'd done, but because of what Jesus did. So go study world religions. You can look this up. Every world religion pictures, and they won't all use this analogy, but this is essentially what they're picturing. There's a mountain. And at the top of the mountain sits something or someone. And if you work hard enough, you can climb that mountain. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you will have arrived. And the problem is, in every religion in the world, no matter how far you get, it's never enough. Because how could all the good things that I do ever make up for the bad things that I do? Last week, my uh, youngest son got baptized. Super cool moment. If you didn't see it, I'm super glad. If you got to celebrate with us, praise God. 
And uh, when I took him out, we were talking about this very concept. And I said to him, I want you to picture something for a minute, okay? And I think I used this last week, but let's say you punch your brother in the face, right? Right, yeah, okay. Now, I come in and I say, what just happened? He made me mad, okay, so you punch him in the face. Yes, okay. And he looks at me because he feels guilty and says, Dad, can I do the dishes? I'm really sorry. Now, I might say, yeah, sure, go do the dishes. But how does doing the dishes make up for the fact that he punched his brother in the face? How does this fix that? It can't. Which is why in Christianity, we don't believe it's about doing more to get to God. We believe that God sent his son Jesus to come down the mountain to gather all of us and to say, I died for you. On the cross, I paid the penalty for your sins. See, in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul will go on and he'll say, for the wages of sin is death. Do you know what wages are? Wages are what you earn, right? So you work hard, you can pay it a wage, and that's what you get. So all of our sin earned us death. But God said, instead of paying you death, which is what we earned for our rebellion against him, He's gonna send his one and only son. His son will pay that tax. His son will pay that penalty so that he can carry us on his back up the mountain to God. And that's the difference in Christianity. We still need to get back to God, but all of our efforts can't get us there. So we are justified by faith with God. And this brings us peace. Peace. Peace doesn't come by having a bigger bank account. I promise you, this is in no way intended to shame the dead. But Matthew Perry had it made. Fame and fortune. You know what he didn't have? You know what he was longing for? You know what he kept searching after? Do you know what led him to 55 Vicodin a day or Percocet or whatever it was a day? He couldn't get this. He wanted it. The problem is God has placed in each of us this internal thing that knows we are not right. We're not okay. Something's not right in the world. And what it should make us do is cry out to God and say, help. And for anybody who does that, who calls on the name of the Lord, what happens is God restores the relationship vertically with him. And then that frees us to be restored horizontally with others. So that as God forgives me, I can forgive others. As God is merciful to me, I could be merciful to others. As God is kind to me, I could be kind to others. And generous to me, I can be generous to others. And all of a sudden, the world starts to become the place that I always needed it to be in the first place. But all of this comes through faith in Jesus Christ, through whom we've been gained access. We have access to God now because of Jesus. We couldn't even get to him by climbing the mountain. Access came by faith, and this is called grace. Now, one of the mistakes we all make is we put grace, like we take every word that means something in the Bible, we just say it's grace. So we define grace as forgiveness and grace as mercy and and grace as love and grace as kindness and grace as faithfulness and grace is its own thing, like it's its own thing. And I think the most helpful definition of grace is this, unmerited favor. Now, if you don't know what a merit is, a merit is a wage, right? Unmerited means I didn't earn it. I can't earn it. My tiny little stack of good deeds is not enough to overcome my bad or evil deeds. So I have to receive it. And what am I receiving? I'm receiving God's favor. Not a favor, like, hey, I'll do something nice for you because I'm nice God. No, favor. His face is always perpetually turned toward me. Always. 
If there's ever a gap in the relationship between me and God, it's because I turned away from him, but his face is still turned towards me because of grace. I need only to turn back to him and to receive the grace that he is offering and giving me because by grace, through Jesus Christ, I have unmerited favor. God is always for me. And Paul goes on in chapter, or verse two, the second part of verse two, and he says, and we boast in this. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast about it. Pride is bad. Pride is very bad. And the Bible is as bad as it gets. It's the thing that made Satan fall. But there is nothing wrong with being proud of Jesus Christ. In fact, pride in Jesus Christ is what makes you worship. It's what makes you celebrate. It's what makes you sing. It's what makes you show up and say, thank you, God, because you are proud not of what you have done. You are proud of what he has done for you. And the thing that I love, yeah, yeah, you can stop giving God the glory. And speaking of glory, this word glory is a very unique word because it literally means to have your head held high. Do you ever meet somebody going through it? What do they do with their eyes? They can't look at the people they've loved because they're embarrassed, they're ashamed. They carry this weight. And they don't know what to do with it. And that's when Satan has the perfect opportunity to get in there and steal their joy, and steal their hope. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. I spoke in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania two weeks ago. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I grew up a Browns fan. Please forgive me and give me grace. I get it. But uh, it's really hard to go to Pittsburgh and speak and not make a joke about that. But I said, you know, as a Browns fan, we hope all the time. We hope our draft works out this year. You know, we hope we finally have a good team. We hope we finally have a quarterback who stays healthy. We're still hoping that. We hope we finally uh, figured out. We hope we finally have a winning record. We hope we finally make the playoffs. We've never made the Super Bowl. We hope for that. And what hope means in that context, by the way, they ate up that analogy. What, worked that, what works with hope in that context is it shows us that what we're hoping for is a maybe. But see, biblical hope is completely different than that. The definition of biblical hope is confident expectation that God will do what he promised us he would do. Confident expectation. Every single word in that is critical. My hope is not, oh man, I should probably choose Jesus because it might turn out better than the alternatives. The reason I'm choosing Jesus is because even though I don't know what it's going to look like, I have absolute confidence that God is who he said he is and he'll do everything he said he will do. Therefore, I am not afraid of death. Don't get me wrong. I am not looking forward to the moments that come right before death. I think those could kind of suck. Like they're not gonna be pleasant, right? There's no getting around it. But I'm absolutely confident, absolutely confident. Not because of what I did, because of what he has done. So my hope for this life is not that things won't ever be hard. My hope for this life is not that there won't be ever be financial stress or troubles or struggles, especially when you enter my own sin and the consequences that come from that. No, 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 no. My hope is that no matter what, God is with me, God is for me, God is in me, and he promises that if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all these things are gonna work out for you because I am for you. This allows Paul in verse three to go on and say, not only so, not only all the good news that I just shared, not only that, but we also glory in our sufferings. Who 
does that? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. So it's not just this mental game that I play with myself. It's like, okay, I just gotta believe. I just gotta believe. I just gotta believe, right? Just trust, just have faith. There's like an actual physical experience that goes alongside with that. And the physical side of it is when life hurts, when there is suffering. By the way, I didn't say this last service because you always get extra at this service. Peter tells us there's two kinds of suffering. There's good suffering and bad suffering, right? Bad suffering is where I am experiencing the consequences of my decision. Peter says, yeah, it happens. Good suffering is where I stand up under the weight of bad things happening to me and I hang on to my hope and he says, God is watching and he's taking note. So when I suffer, if I push through to the end, what I'll find is a different me on the other side, right? Because suffering creates this opportunity to wrestle with God, are you there, do you care, are you watching? But that can lead to perseverance where I gotta find the grit. That's the word we love today, right? The grit to push through and keep going. And what that does is that develops something in me, my character. And my character is both what happens publicly when everybody else is looking and what happens privately when nobody else is looking. Am I playing the same game on both sides of this? And what that leads to is hope. And the reason that leads to hope is because I know God is taking note of my life. I know God is watching. And so when I'm following after him and I'm doing the right thing, not so I can be saved, but I'm doing the right thing because I know that God is watching and I wanna please him, what he says is I am favoring you. I am turning my face towards you and I will work this together for your good. That's later on in Romans chapter eight, but it's the same book. He's saying, if you push through all this pain and suffering, I will come through on all my promises. I'll come through. And that's why in verse five, he could say, and hope does not put us to shame. Mm -mm. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This week I was talking to my mom and man, it's been a, I know you're all busy. I promise you, if we have a busy contest, I win. Um, I'm just kidding, I'm not serious. It's just been busy. It's been really, really busy. And I don't just mean we have to shop and plan and, and wrap all of that too, but then just a lot of other things going on in our life just make life extra, extra busy for us right now. And I'm talking to my mom the other day and she's checking on me. She's like, how you doing? And I just said, you know, mom, I said, I am crazy busy and I'm tired. I'm really, really tired but my cup is full. You know, I can either focus on all the bad things happening right now or I can focus on the good. I, I got some extended time with my boys and yesterday I got to go on a date with my wife and we're gonna have some family coming into town here for Christmas and we're gonna get to visit family at Christmas and there's gonna be a lot of great things. It's busy, it's stressful, but I got to have this really good and hard conversation with this person, this really rewarding and hard conversation with this person, not once, but twice. It was in the evening, I had to give up family time, but my cup was full. My cup was full of the love of God being poured into my life as I'm pouring it onto others, and I'm so glad I don't wanna live any other life than the one that I'm living. I am a blessed man. I have God's favor for me. He's with me, even in the midst of the hardships, the struggles, whatever they might be for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Verse six, he says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. This is critical to understanding everything I'm saying because what Paul is trying to get to is, you didn't add anything to this mathematical equation, nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing 
equals everything. It's not Jesus plus your best day, Jesus plus your good works, Jesus plus your hard effort. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Jesus didn't wait for you to fix your life and clean it up and put it together and figure it all out before he died for you. He's like, no, while they're still sinners, while they're still ungodly, I'm going to die for them. And this little phrase here, just the right time. Okay, so in Greek, there's two different concepts for time. One is chronos. You hear a word in there? Chronology. That's what it means. I think there's actually like a, a titan or a demigod or a god of chronos. I don't I have to look at my history again and remember that. But in Roman language, or in Greek language, I should say, what it really refers to is this idea of time passing. So you've got, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You've got, you know, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 10 a.m. You've got, you know, you're two years old, you're three years old, you're four years old. It's the literal passing of time. That's not the word that's used here. This word that's used here is more like carpe diem. It's more like a moment of time, an opportunity. And the reason that word is so important is because of everything that happened to lead to the coming of Jesus Christ. So if you go back, if you take the entire Bible, I told you earlier there were 66 books. There's 39 Old Testament, there's 27 New Testament. And if you take the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, and there's a gap between them of about 400 years of what we call silence. This was a really dark and painful period in the Israelites, the Jewish people's lives. Because they always had prophets coming along and telling them things, but God was silent. Now, if you go back in the uh, few hundred years before that, and then in that same time period, what happened was, uh, because the Jewish people did not follow after God, he allowed a, a really tough and terrible discipline into their lives. Now, he promised them this is, this is what's going to happen. But what happened is nation after nation came in and, and took over the area. I may have my order wrong, but I believe it started with the Babylonians, then it went to the Assyrians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And basically each group of people conquered them. Everybody they conquered took them over and was even more dark and more oppressive than the one before. Rome was the most oppressive of all of them. One of the things that Rome did that was terribly oppressive was a taxation. Rome charged an unbelievable amount of tax. And it was so difficult because if you're barely making it as it is and then Rome charges a tax, that's why when the Jewish people, tax collectors, were hired by Rome to gather the taxes, they were hated because not only did they betray their own people and work for the Romans, but they were allowed to add their own fees on top of that and they could add whatever fee they wanted. So if they knew you had a good, uh, maybe a lot of fish you caught that day, they could charge more. And it was just backbreaking. You could never get ahead. It was this terrible oppression. And the Jewish people were crying out in that silence, where are you? But what Rome did was they created something called the Pax Romana. I don't know if you remember that from your history class. The Pax Romana did a lot of things, but it did three important things. As Rome conquered what we would say is probably the entire known world at the time, they made everybody use the same currency so that when you were in one town or another, you could spend the same coin. The other thing they did is they created one language so that everybody in that area spoke the same language. And again, they conquered almost the entire known world at the time. And the other thing they did as a part of the Pax Romana is they unified all these different towns and cities and people group with roads so that you could travel from one place to another and you could communicate and do business. It was extremely intelligent for Rome as a government. 
But at just the right time, Jesus showed up in that world. So that when he won people to himself, he could send them back out and say, now, go. Go tell everybody about the good news that I have come to rescue and redeem and restore you. I have come to save you. And Jesus' disciples could go through all the different towns and villages and communicate and share the gospel and do business and make it work. And what happened was what seemed to be hopeless was really just God working behind the scenes on his own time. And it makes me wonder if that's what he's doing in your life today. If you could just see behind the scenes, would you see God working and doing all these different things? Because it says he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. So the real question is, do you love God? Just to make his point clear, Romans chapter five, verse eight, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you don't have to ever have to wonder again, does God love me? Look at the cross. In the movie, George Bailey's standing on the bridge and he's contemplating jumping himself and suddenly this old man, who we find out is an angel, shows up next to him. And just as George is about to jump into the water, the angel jumps in first. Following that scene, there's kind of this funny dialogue between him and the angels. The angel's like, I saved your life. And George says, what are you talking about? I jumped into the water and I saved your life. The angel said, no, 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 no. I knew you would jump in to save my life rather than jump in and kill yourself. There's a difference. I saved you. And it's kind of a funny moment, but what it does reveal is really profound. It reveals that God was always watching, that God really does care, that God really is orchestrating things and he's paying attention to your life, that his favor is for you. The question is always, will you walk in his favor? Will you receive what he has for you? Kevin, in his story, he goes on, he says this, the next Sunday, right after this blow-up moment in his life, I went to church. That sermon message was Luke chapter 6, verse 46, and it says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Whew, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Life got so dark, but in the darkness, I clung to my Bible and my God. He didn't let go of me. One day, as I sat in my office, I got my pistol out. I went to load a bullet in the chamber, it jammed. I put it back in the drawer. Later that day, I audibly heard a voice say, I love you, Kevin. Clearly, I was not in my right state of mind. And I hesitate to say it was God, but I think it was. A couple of weekends after this, my in-laws were in town. I decided this would be a good time to get baptized. That sounds so odd to say it like that. Truthfully, I was down, but I knew God was getting me through it. I knew that if I stuck with God and kept my faith, I would be okay. When I realized that, I knew I was ready. I was giving God everything, my troubles, my worries mainly, but my blessings and thanks as well. The only thing left was my heart and my soul. I've already told you my side of Kevin's story in the past. 
God worked it out so that I messed up and I didn't have my paperwork for a trip to Mexico for the father-son trip last year. And I text blasted everybody I knew, said, does anybody have a notary? And one of our elders, my good friend, Bobby Williams said, I do. Why don't you come to the office first thing in the morning? Little did I know, Bobby had put Kevin's name on one of these pillars and was praying for him on a regular basis. And when I showed up that next morning at like seven o'clock in the morning, there's Kevin. Now I'm thinking, I just want to get this thing signed and get out of here and get home. But Bobby won't stop introducing me to Kevin. And he's telling me about him and he's like, hey, you know, you should come to Kingsway sometime. And I'm like, yeah, you should. Don't come this Sunday because it's our commitment Sunday for our capital campaign and you'll hate it and you'll never come back. And um, he told me later, he went home and told his wife. He said, well, we're going this Sunday because uh, pretty much somebody tells me not to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and I, I, I'm literally sitting at lunch, breakfast, where we Kevin yesterday, just in awe of God orchestrating things to bring him to this place. Here's a picture of me and Bobby and Kevin that day. Bobby's like, let's get a picture of this moment. Did not know we were marking a moment. Didn't know. I just wonder if you could see behind the scenes for a minute, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ? My pastor and mentor wrote a book and um, I love this quote in the book. He says this, the book is called Soul Strength. He said, the greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. After listening to a leader share his self-doubts and fears, I sometimes surprise him with a rebuke. You're a big stinking liar. Stop lying to yourself. You're neither helpless nor hopeless. Christ is in you and he is for you. And that's good news. And I wonder, yeah, 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 you just have to give God the glory. All right, here's what I wanna do. I don't know where this is gonna land exactly for you because if you're in a good place, I want this to land as encouragement to you. And if you're in a rough place, man, maybe that's just the word you needed. We had a lady show up last service. She just happened to be in town visiting family. She's from Montana, never been here in her life. Came last service, she's like, that was just for me. I'm glad the rest of us gathered so she could meet Jesus. But there might be somebody in this service just like that. And if this word is just for you, would you choose to make the day you walk away and give your life to Jesus? And maybe if that's you, the rest of us are gonna stand and sing in just a moment. We're gonna sing this song called Victory. And it's all about, I know, I know, I don't know when, I don't know how, I know that God is for me, so he's gonna work it out. I'm gonna see a victory. And as we sing that song of triumph and celebration, I just wanna encourage anybody in this room who's never made a public profession to give your life to Jesus, I want you to go down to our Connect Team members, they'll be at the tables, and just go to them and say, hey, I, I need to know more about this Jesus guy. I didn't know I did, but I do. Well, everybody stand, I'm gonna pray, and then we're just gonna build it out. Men, I need you to join me in building it out, all right? The Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It doesn't matter how you sound, but sing it like we're bringing back Jesus by the end of the song, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a good God. Thank you for giving us your grace, your unmerited favor, that you are with us all the time. And not just with us, you are for us all the time. And not just for us, God, as believers of Jesus Christ, you are in us, directing us and guiding us and helping us and holding us up. Thank you for Kevin's humility, being willing to share the toughness of that story. Thank you for how it's gonna help encourage and challenge this church today, God, and anybody who listens online. But Lord, let it not just be words that come in one ear and not the other. Let it move us and stir us to go all in with you. You have paid the price. You have done the work to rescue us and redeem us. May we now walk with you because we love you and our cup is filled. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.